I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker. And this is Hell on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, January 17th, 2012. Wait a minute, Joel. What's with the music shift? Sergeant Pepper instead of our normal theme music, Josh Cutler. And speaking of which, why are you wearing a birthday hat? Well, Susan, we're here to celebrate How on Earth's 20th anniversary. Yes, 20 years ago today, or almost today, on January 14th, 1991, KGNU's science show debuted. So we're going to celebrate the 20th birthday of How on Earth. Well, happy birthday to us. And in the studio, we have who? We have Jeff Ori, the show's original co-host. Back when uh, we produced the show, it was originally called the KGNU Science Show. And also, Sam Fuqua, our studio manager, was also one of the originators. He's not here in the studio at the moment, but he was one of the originals there as well. We have a little bit of the old and the new here in the studio. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Well, thank you. It's great to be here, or great to be back. You were one of the originators of How on Earth. Right, and uh, regarding the name, we should say um, the first show actually aired without a name. We had a contest to name the, sh- name the show because we couldn't think of a name uh, for the show when we you know, had the first one come on the air. So what was the impetus to, to start the science show in the first place? You know, I was trying to recollect, but I think Sam and I kind of had the ideas independently, Sort of the way calculus was formed. <laughs> you were Leibniz and he was Newton or something exactly. like that. Um, I was a graduate student in the physics department up at CU and was uh, interested in, uh, you know, seeing uh, sci- the scientific ideas, uh, you know, shared with the public in a way that was, you know, understood for the non- by the non-specialist. Um, Sam was relatively new to the station. He wasn't the director at the time. I can't remember his original role, but um, he had also expressed interest, and maybe it was Marty Durlin, who was the station director at the time, put us together and said, hey, you two guys have this idea that sounds similar. Why don't you talk about it? Just the KGNU science show, and you had a contest about what to call it. Right, and I remember there was a long list on the wall. People could just walk into the studio and and either call in or or write write a name on the wall, and gosh, we had several dozen names, and how on earth was the one that stuck? It's interesting you mentioned contests, because we had a contest recently about changing our theme song, and I believe we have a clip of the original theme music for the show. I think Shelley can play it here. Pretty dramatic. Yeah, that was um, Larry Morrison, I think, was a volunteer at the time, and Sam can clarify that if he were here, but uh, we didn't. I don't think we even had theme music the first few shows, but then Larry put that together. Uh, and uh, it stayed for a while as well. Not all of us were happy with it, but uh, it was a unique, you know, original piece for the show. Well, thanks a lot, Jeff. And we have some other snippets we're going to play today and tie in the old with the new. We appreciate you coming by and uh, celebrating the anniversary. Thanks a lot, Jeff, for joining us and um, also celebrating with us and helping us look back at that first show. Our Shelley Schlender, How on Earth's veteran executive producer, Tom McKinnon, producer and co-host, and Tom Mulesman, a contributor to How on Earth. 
So first, any teasers for this week in science on the Front Range, Joel? Actually, we do. We have a cafe sci coming up. Uh, it seems that it's a fundamental part of human nature to look up in the sky and wonder, is anybody out there? If not, the universe seems like a pretty lonely place. So we've imagined from Mount Olympus to Tatooine that the sky is populated by bugs, bug-eyed aliens or gods or uh, something else that looks remarkably human sometimes. But the recent flood of new discoveries of planets around other stars have sparked renewed interest in the search for and speculation about extraterrestrial life. So moving from science fiction to real science, we have the field of astrobiology, the study of what life may be inhabiting other worlds throughout the universe and even relatively close to home in our solar system. So tonight at the Denver Cafe Scientifique at 630 at the Wincoop Brewing Company, Dr. Brian Heenick an assistant professor at the University of Colorado in Atlas will give a talk titled Mars, Are We Alone? We have Dr. Heenick in the studio today to give us a preview of what may be out there and how we can find out. Welcome to the show. Oh, I thank you. So, uh, Mars, Are We Alone? What exactly is your talk going to be about so you can give people a little taste here? Uh, well, I guess the teaser would be, uh, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the most recent results and uh, just the inflood of data and, and new discoveries that we're making, which all are pointing toward uh, Mars being more habitable than we previously thought. What are some of the hints that it's more habitable? Uh, well, uh, recently, springs have been seen even flowing today on Mars, on the cold, dry environment, uh, have been captured on cameras. And certainly in the past, there's evidence uh, for oceans and rivers and uh, active hydrologic cycle, just like we have on Earth. So there's evidence of water, and where you find water, you hope that there's good conditions for life. Right. It, it seems like, at least for Earth, water is a key ingredient for life, and, and all life requires water. So understanding the history of water on Mars and, and a number of other things allows us to sort of infer its potential for hosting life in the past or even present. So the idea is to follow the water, and that's what a lot of missions have been trying to do. Uh, yes, they have, and uh, there's actually one on the way called Mars Science Laboratory, also named Curiosity, and I'll be talking about that as well and, and what this very capable field geologist robot is going to do on the surface of Mars. What is this robot? <laughs> uh, it's it's the size of a Mini Cooper for the wheelbase. It's uh, 10 feet long, so it's the largest rov roving vehicle we've sent uh, to Mars, and it's it's going to uh, explore these interesting sedimentary deposits, something akin to uh, uh, something we'd find in Utah or Arizona, probably. So this is like Opportunity, or some of the other rovers have been around there, but bigger. Right, yes. This is the, the rover on steroids, or the SUV of <laughs> rovers, as we like to call it. How long will it be working on Mars? Uh, it will land in August and uh, is planned to last at least two Earth years and, and drive uh, 20 kilometers. Wow, okay. And hopefully longer than two years, just like the other rovers have lasted longer than their warranty said they would. Right. The engineers do a very thorough job building these things and testing them. So uh, we, we hope for maybe 10 years of science return from this one. Excellent. Well, if anyone out there wants to hear any more, they can hear Brian Heenick. Uh, we'll be giving a talk tonight at the Denver Cafe Scientifique. His talk is titled, Mars, Are We Alone? That's tonight at 6.30 in the Mercantile Room in the Wincoop Brewing Company on the corner of 18th and Wincoop in Lodo in Denver. It is free, and everyone is welcome. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Brian. Thanks very much, Joel.
So one of the first, one of the features we had on our first show was something known as Buckminster Fullerene. Here's what How on Earth co-hosts had to say about it then. Science Magazine has chosen its Molecule of the Year for 1991, Buckminster Fullerene. It's named after American architect R. Buckminster Fuller, whose geodesic dome has the same fundamental shape as the molecule. Buckminster Fullerene, it's a courier service, a sponge, a catalyst, an optical switch, a superconductor. It's strong and it may be safe. Buckminster Fullerene, found only in your finer chemistry laboratories. <laughs> and in our fine studio here, we have Tom McKinnon today to comment on what's happened since Buckminster Fullerene was named Molecule of the Year in 1991 by Science Magazine. So first, tell us about your role in it. Well, it certainly was an exciting time for this new material in 1992. Uh, we've known about two forms of carbon uh, for thousands of years, graphite and diamond, but uh, along comes on the scene this uh, entirely new type, uh, also known as uh, buckyballs or fullerenes, and it had this wonderful symmetrical structure. It looked like a soccer ball. Um, so it created quite a lot of excitement in the science community and the popular press, too. A Nobel Prize was awarded to its discoverers. It appeared on the covers of magazines and countless journals uh, articles were written. Um, my role was, along with my PhD advisor, I discovered, and, and, and quite by accident it's worth noting, uh, how to produce fullerenes on a large scale uh, using the combustion process that we were studying. In fact, for, for quite a few years I had the largest stash of fullerenes ever assembled on the planet in my laboratory at MIT but I didn't even know about it at the time. Are you sure you didn't know about it? <laughs> <laughs> so we, we really thought our patent uh, uh, was hot stuff. Uh, in fact, my advisor uh, formed a company to exploit the idea. And so then what happened? Apparently you didn't retire to the coast of France on your royalties? Uh, well, no. Uh, what happened was, despite the buzz about all the different possible applications of fullerenes, nothing really panned out in a big way. But there is a market for fullerenes, but not in the bulk quantities that we'd hoped for. Nonetheless, the, the discovery of uh, fullerenes did pave the way for many other carbon nanostructures that uh, proved more useful, things like nanotubes, nanospheres, and uh, more recently, graphenes. So the old boring world of uh, carbon has had quite an exciting run for the last 20 years. <laughs> well, great. And I think that's a topic we'll uh, <clears throat> return to in 2012. So thanks, Tom. Well, you know, this is Shelley here, and fullerenes is one of the many science topics that has stood the test of time. Twenty years ago, the possible dangers of electromagnetic radiation was on everyone's mind. And on the first episode of the Science Show, KGNU's intrepid journalists milked the topic for all it was worth with a look at EMFs and cows. So let's listen in. When their cow's milk production drops and they can't figure out why, Dairy farmers throughout Minnesota and Wisconsin turn to Al Balgard. Balgard corrects wiring problems in their barns, and that seems to do the trick. The cow's milk production and overall health improves. It's not exactly foolproof research, but a lot of Midwest dairy farmers are convinced electric fields harm their cows. Sam Fuqua spoke by phone with Al Balgard, who was at his home in Corcoran, Minnesota. You watch the animals, and first thing you know, you'll see tail switching, and then they get nervous and start dancing because it's bothering them right through the feet. And their milk production suffers? Oh, yes. Can you tell me a couple more of your success stories? Well, I just got a report on one power company had been there, but they had, couldn't find anything. Well, what I traced it down to, he had underground service, and he had a bad wire in there. And they had at one time replaced one of the wires, but they hadn't taken the old one out. 
Well, there you have it. 20 years ago, evidence that a loose wire can cause problems in milking in cows. Actually, on that first show, there was also a full-fledged science expert from CU named Frank Barnes, who remains today one of the world's experts on electromagnetic radiation. And with us in the studio now is Frank. Frank, can you tell us more about who you are and what you know about EMFs? Well, I've been working on EMFs for whole well, since 1975, so I've looked at quite a few of these problems. And there's, of course, a lot of confusing evidence. Now, one thing that you said even 20 years ago is that everything has risks, and there probably are some risks with electromagnetic radiation. Well, sure, it depends on the amplitude level. You know, we use uh, electric fields in the, in the electric chair. That's clearly not good for your health, so the numbers make a difference, and there are levels low enough so that they don't do anything. Your body's an electrochemical system, so... It's not surprising that if you insert large enough electric fields, it can mess things up. Now, Frank Barnes, you said that you, too, know about a problem that happened with milk production and cows and electromagnetic fields. Can you tell your story? Yeah, there was a, a farmer up in the northwest Bonneville Power System area who had his water trough underneath the high power lines, and every time the cows put their head in the water to get a drink of water, they got a shock, so they quit giving so much milk. It's not too surprising. So sometimes it's obvious like that. But even in your lab, you have seen some issues that have to do with subtleties. Is that right? Yeah, we've been looking at some very interesting effects of very weak magnetic fields, the size of the Earth's magnetic field. And we've shown that when we cancel out the Earth's magnetic field, we're able to inhibit the growth of a couple of kinds of cancer, which was quite surprising to us, but very interesting. But then there's the other side that at other levels, it seems that electromagnetic waves can create cancer or, or add to the risk? That, that's yet to be shown. Uh, certainly, we, we're, for affecting growth, you can affect various systems. There are lots of feedback systems in the body, and so it's pretty hard to tell what's going in what direction. I don't think there's a solid evidence of cause and effect with respect to fields and the enhancement of cancer uh, in, at the low-frequency levels we've been talking about. It, down around 60 cycles or so. However, if something can cause a potential good effect, it can also cause a bad effect. And if we don't know how to control it or how to manage it, then we don't know which it's going to do. No, there's, a lot, there's quite a little bit of evidence that indicates that you can make things go in both directions. You know, it's a little bit like your grandmother told you, too much of a good thing will kill you. And arsenic, for example, is, is necessary for growth, and too much arsenic will kill you. So there are a lot of things in that category, and I wouldn't be surprised if electric and magnetic fields have some of the same characteristics. Well, stay tuned to Frank Barnes for uh, stay tuned for more from Frank Barnes in the months and years ahead because there's been a lot of interesting things coming out of your lab. And thank you for being with us on our first show 20 years ago, and also now on our 20th anniversary show. I'm Shelley Schlender. You're tuned to How on Earth. And here's a news item about the Hubble Space Telescope from the original show. In space science in 1991, with respect to Hubble, that problem-plagued telescope, four failing gyroscopes, unwanted vibrations, a faulty spectrograph were some of the problems. Nonetheless, Hubble captured the sharpest images of Mars ever taken, as well as a photo depicting the clouds in Jupiter's turbulent atmosphere. To quote Shakespeare, Hubble, bubble, toil and trouble. 
toil and trouble indeed. So it's not often that one mixes Macbeth and astrophysics. Conveniently, Joel not only has been co-host for 10 years, but he's also a Shakespearean actor and an astronomer. He works at the Southwest Research Institute here in Boulder and has used the Hubble Space Telescope for his research. So who better to talk about the Hubble, then and now, than Joel? So let's start with what exactly was the trouble with Hubble? (laughs) Uh, When Hubble was built, the shape of the mirror was done incorrectly. The problem was there was this device called a null corrector, which measured, helped measure the figure or the shape of the mirror. And the null corrector was off just a little bit, like less than two millimeters. But that was just enough that the main mirror of the telescope was figured incorrectly. So it was made perfectly, just perfectly wrong. <laughs> so now, how well... Is the Hubble telescope working? After a few servicing missions, they've done very well. They were able to correct Hubble's vision by basically kind of giving it some glasses to bring it back to the way that it should have been designed. And then as new instruments got put on Hubble Space Telescope, they had that correction already built into them. So Hubble is has now been working up to spec and doing as expected, and it's doing as well better, really, than a lot of people uh, had hoped. And it's better than a lot of ground-based telescopes are able to do. It really is doing phenomenally. So not just above average. No, no, phenomenal. (laughs) And so just a little bit about what's so unique about the Hubble itself? Well, the Hubble Space Telescope is in space. So that means that it uh, doesn't have the Earth's atmosphere between it and what it's looking at. And Trying to look through the Earth's atmosphere is kind of like lying on the bottom of a uh, swimming pool and looking up through the waves and everything gets Mm -hmm. kind of distorted. For in space, you don't have that atmospheric interference, so you get really good, nice, crisp images, and you don't get absorption by the atmosphere. So you can look like in the ultraviolet and in other bands that don't reach the Earth. And then uh, finally, so how much longer will it last? The servicing missions are done basically because they can't service it anymore with the shuttle. Basically, it's as the instruments wear out and also as the orbit decays. And eventually, orbit will decay and it will crash back down into the Earth. And that will be the end of Hubble. (laughs) Like all things end in decay. I know, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks a lot, Joel. Great that you uh, can both speak to Macbeth and Hubble. Uh, Absolutely. You're still listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Susan Moran. So 20 years ago today, the very first How on Earth program did not mention global warming. It's understandable because the subject actually wasn't making news every day, as it often does now. That said, the subject had drawn big headlines already by then, and scientists had been predicting for many years prior to the first show that the carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases accumulating in the atmosphere should be warming the planet. And they said this warming should trigger all manner of climatic and environmental disruption, including sea rise levels, increases in drought, and longer and hotter heat waves. 1988 was a turning point in the science and particularly in public attention to the topic. So how far have we come since then? Joining us here in the studio to discuss that question is Tom Yulesman, co-director of the Center for Environmental Journalism at the University of Colorado in Boulder and a contributor to How on Earth. So welcome to the program. Glad to be here. So tell us um, about that 
turning point for starters in 1988 seems like it was a pretty significant one. Well, it was a, a record warm year globally. Uh, there were uh, temperatures uh, were 100 degrees or higher in, I think, 45 cities across the United States uh, in late June. Uh, and, uh, and on that day in late June, a NASA scientist named James Hansen testified before the Senate to say global warming is real and we're the cause. And did people, by and large, believe him then? Um, well, I, you know, there was a, a raft of, of articles. Uh, there was sort of scientific uh, controversy at the time. Some people think that he crawled a little bit too far out on a limb um, and that the science didn't quite validate yet what he was saying. Uh, but I think since then, um, you know, the vast majority of scientists have come around to uh, his point of view, that what he testified about uh, in front of the Senate. And he's continued to play a really big role in the field, right? Yeah, so he um, directs a group uh, at NASA that uh, that keeps track of uh, temperatures across the globe, and that's um, there's a couple of independent groups that do that. So, he, you know, his group is one of the ones that is showing just how much the Earth is warming up. And just in a, a minute or so, so how far have we come? I mean, it's so polarized, it's so yes. controversial, but but really scientifically and otherwise. Well, scientifically, there's you know really very little question at all that human beings are the cause of the warming. The warming has continued. The 1990s were the warmest decade on record, and now the last 10 years were warmer still. Uh, now we're starting to see documentation of, you know, the kinds of changes that that warming is occurring, sea level rise, changes in the length of season, that kind of thing. In terms of policy, um, we haven't really come very far uh, since 1992 when the show began. With uh, uh, That year was when the Framework Convention on Climate Change was uh, ratified, mm -hmm. and that was supposed to get the countries of the world on a path to doing something. Well, thanks. We've been covering some of this, um, largely thanks to Tom, and we'll certainly be covering more in 2012 and well beyond. So thanks a lot. I'm Shelley Schlender, executive producer of The Science Show Today. With me now is Sam Fuqua, executive producer of The Science Show 20 years ago. Oh, I, I just wanted to say congratulations to the current How on Earth team, uh, Shelley and Tom and Susan, Joel and everybody for uh, continuing this program. It's a great example, certainly not the only example, but a prime example of what KGNU does best, which is uh, bring together a group of folks from the community who know about an issue, who are passionate about it, and who want to bring it to the airwaves of community radio. So uh, from Jeff, the original co-host, to... Uh, the folks in this room now, just a big congratulations for this show, which is really emblematic of, of what KGNU uh, can and does do on a daily basis. So congrats, how on earth? You're 20 <laughs> years you. old. <laughs> thank you, Sam. And thanks to our listeners for making this show possible and to Sam and Jeff for getting it started. If you would like to hear the entire show, it is on our archives at howonearthradio.org. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This show's this week's show was engineered by Shelley Schlender. Also, Shelley Schlender is our executive producer, and theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. That's the current theme music that is. Additional music from the Beatles. Can't listen to How on Earth on our regular time? No worries, just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker.